Financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year. And then the inflation data came out, higher than expected. Friends, this isn't going away. It can't. The U.S. is $34 trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation, and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They'll help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold, and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Text STRANGE to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation with gold. Text STRANGE to 989898 now. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. I'm Samantha Cole, host of the new season of Understood, The Pornhub Empire. Over the course of four episodes, I'll tell you how a horny YouTube knockoff in Canada came to dominate the porn world, only to shatter their cheeky reputation in a massive scandal. The Pornhub Empire is a new season of Understood from the CBC. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Following the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from the Great White North and his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard. Nicholas Parisi is uh, with us and we are celebrating the uh, the legacy of Rod Serling and Nicholas serves on the board of directors for the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation, a charitable organization dedicated to preserving and promoting Rod's legacy. He's a former staff writer, editor for Good Times Magazine in Long Island, and uh, again, the author of Rod Serling, His Life, Work, and Imagination, with a foreword by Rod's daughter, Anne Serling. So, um, how did you get to meet Anne I first met Anne when she was, uh, she was doing a reading for her book, uh, her book, uh, As I Knew Him, My Dad, Rod Serling. And uh, she was doing an appearance for that. And I was working on my book at the time. And I had written an outline of my book and a, a pretty detailed outline of my book. And I brought it to her. I met her and her husband. And I, I brought it to her and I said, hey, this is what I'm working on. And I'd love to get your opinion on it. And I gave it to her. And, uh, and she called me the next day and said this is wonderful this is this is tremendous i hope you i hope you do this please do this please finish this um it's exactly what's needed because because again i i the one thing about my book is that it's it's the first book that covers rod strong's entire career from show number one to show number end you know and and it covers them in a way that other books have not covered them in a show by show series by series basis so i i think she was very um 
you know, intrigued by the idea that she would finally, that there would finally be a record, you know, an official record of his, his Rod Sterling's body of work. Bam, that's it. You know, this is it. So uh, she encouraged me and it was, she was instrumental in just, I mean, when you get uh, the endorsement of the man's daughter, you're going to, you're going to do what she says, you know? So I, so I went and finished the, finished the book, you know? So, and she was kind enough to offer to write the, the forward for me. So, and we've been, we've been friends ever since. And that's, uh, you know, and, and I always have to give credit to her book because her book, as I knew him, my dad, Rod Serling is just a beautiful memoir. It's the book that if you, feel like there's any part of Rod Sterling that you don't know about, get her book, you know, get her book instead of mine, you know, and, and read that because you'll get the, you'll get a picture of the man that you had not had before of the, of the father, the, the, the human being, uh, you know, in, in her book. It's really a, a tremendous piece of work. Well, I've not read it, but um, was he like an attentive dad? Because it seemed to be so wrapped up in his work. I, I imagine him as just like a, a, a workaholic. Was he, an attentive dad. Uh, yeah, I, I think, well, I think he was cloned. At some point he was cloned because there had to be two or three Rod Sterlings running around at some, at some point, because I don't know how, otherwise know how he was able to accomplish all the things that he did. But seriously, he, um, the amazing thing about Anne's recollections and Anne's book is the fact that yes, he was, he wasn't necessarily, um, let's put it this way. She says that she and her sister Jody never felt like they were without dad. They always felt that he was there and he was, and he was approachable. You know, he had his, his office, you know, on the grounds, he had his office next to the pool, you know, in, in the, at the house. And when they would come to New York, when they would come to, uh, to Ithaca and they had their lake house, you know, he would be working on the boat. He'd, he'd have his, he, he dictated. So he would be dictating on the boat, but he was there, you know, so he was, they always felt that he was, he was, uh, approachable and, and accessible. So no matter how much work he was doing, and, and it was a tremendous amount of work that he did. So that is the ama- one amazing thing that you'll get from her book is how was, we, how was he able to do this? I'm not, I'm not real sure. So uh, if I'm remembering correctly, he wrote 92 out of the 150, 156 episodes over five seasons. I mean, there's prolific Correct. and then there's like Rod Serling. How <laughs> did he work? How did he, do we... Do you have a sense of how he wrote uh, and his working habits? Yeah, well, well, the first thing, like I said, is that un- very unusual for a writer. He dictated all of his scripts. He dictated everything. He started out like everybody does. He started out by typing them in you know, 1950 to, say, 1954 about he would type just like, you know, two, two fingers, peck, hunt and peck, you know. But, but right around 1955, he started to dictate his scripts because he felt that his mind was working too fast for his fingers and couldn't type fast enough. And he, he wanted to just get it out. So he started to dictate and his, his, his process was he would dictate the script um, pretty much straight through, uh, give it to his secretary to type up and she would give him back the print copy. And then he would go through it and line edit it. He would go back and, you know, he'd go and make notes and then he would, and then he would dictate the, the edits. So you dictate Marge, you know, there's, there's a, you know, secretary's name is Marge, page, page three, he will take it from here and he would dictate the, uh, you know, the, the changes, you know, and he would go through it and she would give him the next draft and that would usually probably be it. So, and he would, he would work generally, you know, morning until lunchtime, take that long lunch break and then work a couple hours after lunch and that was pretty much it. Or during Twilight Zone days, he would be, you know, he'd work in the morning, then go to the studio and he'd be at the studio, you know, for a you know, till, till nighttime and then come home, you know, come home afterward, you know, so he, he would put the, put the twilight zone to bed every day, you know, but, um, but yeah, so he, he was, uh, he worked and worked and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. It's just, it's amazing the amount of thing, the amount of stuff that he wrote in, in a short lifetime. How did he write dialogue so well? I mean, I, I've, I, I've, I met uh, Richard Matheson Jr. Uh, I interviewed him and, and um, 
his dad, you know, great writer as well. One of the core four, as we'll discuss. But, but yeah. and he talked about, you know, to be a great writer of dialogue, you have to be a great listener. Yeah. How did how did Rod master writing dialogue? I I think that that is the the essence right there. You have to be a listener. And 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 Rod Serling was, you know, I mentioned before that uh, he was a very personable guy, and and he got along with pretty much everybody, and he had a lot of friends. And I think one of the things that endeared Rod Serling to people was that he actually, he was interested in people. He really, if you talk, I mean, I, I, I was five years old when the man died. So I never met Rod Serling. I wish I could have met Rod Serling. I feel like I met Rod Serling sometimes, but, but if you listen to the people who knew Rod Serling or, or, or took his classes because he taught for a long time or just interacted with him, they would say that, you know, when, when you talk to Rod Serling, he looked you in the eye and he listened to what you said. And, and how amazing that, you know, he was never the Hollywood you know, the Hollywood uh, personality that, oh, yeah, looking at his watch and saying, hey, uh, nice to meet you. I got to get out of here. If you want something to talk to Rod Song about, he would sit there and listen to you. So, so yes, he listened to the way people spoke and he translated that in, into his work. And he had a great ear for dialogue. It was certainly his, his biggest strength as a writer. Right. Would he also script out the, the stage direction or the... Often, yeah, often he would, yes. Um, in uh, The Twilight Zone, certainly... He would he would he would script out the camera angles and things like that close up for you know mid, medium shot that kind of stuff he would even script that out um, and pretty much yeah I, pretty much the same throughout his throughout his career I don't think he ever uh, really strayed away from that I mean he might have uh, cut down on it a little bit later in his career but not but not much he he yeah he would include that stuff was he always a chain smoker. Yeah, I think I think probably from the time he joined the army. Yeah, I don't know if he smoked before that. He probably did, but I think the army was where it really kicked in. And who knows how much how much he smoked? It was just yeah, it was constant, constant. So we mentioned uh, Richard Matheson. So there was what you call the the the, the core four group of writers: Serling, who wrote the bulk ninety two out of one hundred and fifty six episode. We mentioned Richard Matheson. Um, who who are the other in the core four? Charles Beaumont would be the next one for sure, and uh, and George Clayton Johnson is the one that I would con- I would include in that that four. George Clayton Johnson wrote "Kick the Can," "A Game of Pool," um, uh, "Nothing in the Dark" with Robert Redford. Uh, he wrote some real classic episodes. George Clayton Johnson, I think technically, I think Earl Hamner Jr. wrote more episodes than George Clayton Johnson, but. George Clayton Johnson wrote better episodes by, by far. I mean, not to, not to, uh, you know, bag on, on Earl Hamner, but, um, but he was not quite the right writer for the Twilight Zone. His, his episodes are pretty forgettable. Um, but those four, those were the four. And, and I wish I knew the numbers on what each of them wrote, but, um, but between Rod and those three writers, so in those four, I believe they wrote, I think it was like 130 out of the 156. So I think there were only like 26 episodes written by other people than those, than those four writers. So, um, as a, um, as an expert on, on Rod Serling, if you didn't know who wrote what episode and you, you didn't look at the end credits, would you be able to tell, Oh, that's a, that's a Charles Beaumont or that's a George Clayton Johnson or no, that's a Serling. Uh, yes. Yeah. I, I can certainly tell if, if I, if I am trying to think about, well, I'll tell you one I actually did get fooled by one, not, too long. How long ago would it be? About, probably about uh, maybe 15 years ago. I was watching, and one of my favorite episodes, probably top 20, is an episode called, it's, it's an underrated episode called The Trouble with Templeton. It's an episode about uh, an aging actor who um, 
wants to go back in time to when he was younger and uh, his glory days on the stage. And um, he goes back in time and his friends realize that he's come back in time, including his girlfriend. And they push him out. They say, you don't belong here. You need to go back to your own time. And the girl, and there's a scene in this episode that is just so beautiful where the woman is his girlfriend has to play this part. She has to play the act. She has to act like she doesn't want him there because she knows it's better for him to be in the present. She, she shouldn't be in the past. And she pushes him out. And the moment he leaves, you see the, the emotion just come over her face. Like, what did I, I, ha- I had to do something I didn't want to do. And when I watched that episode, like 15 years ago, I, I thought it was Serling. I thought for sure it was Serling. And it turned out it was a man named uh, E. Jack Newman. It was the only episode he ever wrote for the show. Um, and, it, and I was shocked when I said, oh my God, I can't believe that wasn't a Serling. But but one thing you will find, I think, is that Eject Newman in that episode, and there were a couple of times with George Clayton Johnson where I, I think that George Clayton Johnson was emulating Rod Serling just to a certain extent. So I think that in his episodes, there's sometimes where I feel like it's an extension of Rod Serling. You know, he, he kind of emulated him a little bit. But, but Beaumont and Matheson, they have very, very distinctive styles. You know, they, they, were, they stood out like a sore thumb. And, and who decided on the, the core four? Was it the producers? Was it, did Serling have input? It was mainly Serling uh, and Chuck Beaumont. Chuck Beaumont was the, was the, was the, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, not Chuck Beaumont, I'm sorry, Buck Houghton. Buck Houghton was the producer for the, Twilight, for the first three seasons of The Twilight Zone. And um, Serling and Buck Houghton were a great team. They, they really worked well together and they had a real, they had a real similar vision for the, for the show. And so Rod met, Beaumont and Matheson right off the bat when the when he screened the pilot and they were recommended to him by Ray Bradbury. Ray Bradbury recommended these guys and, and along with George Clayton Johnson. And so they were at the screening of the pilot and they kind of, you know, they met Serling and, and Rod invited them to submit their scripts. And I think it was just serendipity. It was just what an amazing bolt of luck because they were so perfect. They were just perfect for the show. And you know, and Rod just accepted their scripts, never edited them, never never changed a word. I mean, he just he just took almost took them exactly as they were to, and, and and aired them. I mean, that, that was how, how well they worked together. He didn't have he never rewrote. Did he have that power? Could he have? Oh yeah, oh sure. Rod Sterling. I mean, he owned half the show. You know, he owned the half the half the half the interest in the films. And like I said, he was the executive producer. He was you know, so he had the power to do pretty much any, anything. And, you know, Charles Beaumont wrote a very famous article right at the beginning of the series for the magazine of fantasy and science fiction about how when he first get, when he gave his first script to Serling, it was a, a script called Perchance to Dream. Great, great episode about a man who thinks he's, a, he's uh, having a recurring nightmare and he has a heart condition and he thinks he's going to die in his sleep because he can't handle this nightmare. And he says, when I gave this script to Serling, I figured, all right, it's going to be chopped up. It's going to be edited. You know, I understand this is television. And, and you know, even though Rod told me, Rod told me, you know, don't worry about the, the little old lady in Dubuque. She'll get it. She'll understand it. Don't worry about it. Just write for yourself. Write it the way you want it to be. And he, Charles Beaumont said, I was, when it aired, I was amazed that not a word had been changed, not a line. He, he was amazed. And, and so that kind of thing endeared writers to Rod Serling because they knew this guy's going to respect my work. And, and if he was going to change something, he'd call me and say, hey, hey Chuck, you know, you know, maybe we should work on this or something. He wasn't just going to take a pencil and, and, and change a line. You know? so, so, yeah, that was, you know, so most of the time, Beaumont and Matheson, their scripts were aired untouched. True or false? Uh, they accepted scripts from viewers uh 
True and false. Uh, at the very <laughs> begin, <laughs> at the very beginning, Rod had this brilliant idea that yeah, we'll open up the we'll open up floodgates. Let let viewers send in their scripts, send in their ideas, and see what see what we come at what comes in. And he said, you know, they got like 500 scripts, and like one of them was even remotely passed. So he stopped that practice pretty much right away. Uh, so, so none of those scripts ever aired, and yeah, he stopped, he he regretted that that decision pretty quick. Yeah, give those to the outer limits. <laughs> yeah. Was there kind of a friendly competition with similar t- shows? Well, outer limits came after the Twilight ah. Zone, um, so there wasn't. I do know that Sterling uh, enjoyed the outer limits. He enjoyed. Uh, Joseph Staranko was the uh, the main writer and, and creator of, of the Outer Limits, and and he admired him. He thought he did good work and everything, um, but no. So there was never really a, a, any any competition or anything. Uh, One step beyond actually came before the Twilight Zone, so that so that had a little bit of an overlap with the Twilight Zone. But again, Twilight Zone was not. It was unique. It wasn't. It wasn't either of those shows. You know, it was it was its own thing, really. Um, Charles Beaumont. He uh, he was the one that died quite young. If I'm, I think it was. Yes. He looked. He was only I don't know maybe forty, but he looked maybe twice that age. What happened to Charles Beaumont? He was stricken with a rare brain disease, a brain disorder that is akin to Alzheimer's disease, akin to early onset Alzheimer's disease. And he was like thirty five, I believe, when he when he contracted it. And yeah, he aged incredibly quick to the point where when he died, yeah, he looked like he was 70 years old. And when he first started experiencing the symptoms of it, people thought he was a drunk. You know, people thought that he was, you know, they thought he was a drinker because he appeared drunk. He was, he would slur his words. He couldn't quite think as clearly as he, as he used to. And several of the Twilight Zone scripts that were credited to Charles Beaumont later in the show were not written by Charles Beaumont. He would farm out his work because he just couldn't handle it anymore. He couldn't do it. He had ideas and maybe short, it was based on his short story, but other people like um, John Tomerlin would, would write his scripts and uh, ghostwrite them. And they did it out of uh, friendship to him. They, never, they didn't get credit. They got paid, but they didn't get credit. And they did it because they knew what he was going through and they, they wanted to help. And he had so many assigned writing assignments that he just couldn't handle them. So, yeah, it's a tragic, tragic story. Charles Beaumont was a brilliant writer. I mean, just a brilliant writer. He wrote novels. He wrote short stories. He wrote some of the greatest Twilight's on episodes. The Howling Man is one of my favorites. Shadow Play is another of my favorites, both Charles Beaumont stories. And, um, yeah, and he died um, way, way, way too young. I'm wondering what it was like on the set. Um, I, w- I was on YouTube recently, and I saw Clint Howard, Ron Howard's brother, reminiscing about life on the, uh, the Andy Griffith show. Andy of Mayberry and, and, uh, what a, it was like such a family on screen and off screen. And they had all of these home movies, um, you know, behind the scenes. Was there anything comparable like that on the twilight zone set? I don't think so. Uh, and you could imagine why, because there weren't any continuing characters on the twilight zone, you know? So it wasn't like they had a chance to really bond uh, over the course of a season or whatever. But Rod Sterling and Charles Beaumont certainly had that kind of friendship. And I, I keep saying Charles Beaumont, I mean Buck Houghton. Buck Houghton. <laughs> Rod Sterling and Buck Houghton had that kind of relationship. They were close friends and everything. And um, so, yeah, so there was, you know, there was that. And and with the other writers, yeah, I should say Charles Beaumont because they were all very good friends. Charles Beaumont, Richard Matson, and Sterling, and George Clayton Johnson, they were all very close. Uh, so that kind of thing. But there was, uh, you know, no continuing characters that could be, that could kind of develop that kind of relationship. Right. But did Anne Sterling spend any time on the set? I believe she talks about one time being on the set when she was very young. Anne was born in, 
Oh, I'm going to probably date her. Uh, she, um, well, let's put it this way. I think she was only like five years old when the show was on. So she was very young. And um, she remembers being on the set and just remembering like a stairway that went to nowhere and thinking it was so weird, like where these stairs go and they just end, you know, like that kind of thing. But, um, but no, nothing, no, um, no real stories about like antics on the set or anything like that. So we think of the Twilight Zone primarily as science fiction and fantasy, but occasionally um, the show would break format. There's an episode with Carol Burnett and Jesse White, who I remember is, he's the original Maytag repairman, but that's not fair. <laughs> he did so much more than that. But as a kid, I remember uh, Jesse White as the Maytag repairman. And that was just an out-and-out comedy. With yeah, own- they actually, yeah, they actually did several comedies. Uh, and the, the one of the big contradict or big you know ironies of rod serling's life actually or as a writer and his writing life is that rod serling loved comedy and you know you think of rod serling as being this dour scary kind of guy and everything rod serling was a cut up rod serling loved comedy he did impressions he just he was a student of comedy he he would he would go watch you know milton burl or watch red skelton and, and just to to absorb it you know and and so he he always wanted to write comedy it never quite came through certainly not in the twilight zone um, the episode with Carol Burnett, I don't think that I don't particularly like that one, but it's, it's a memorable one for her, I think, um, because she's in it, I mean, and, um, you know, so there was that one, there was, uh, you know, this, and there's, there's a few other comedies that, yeah, mainly I'm trying to think if anybody else wrote a comedy, I think mainly was just Rod, like an episode like, uh, Mr. Beavis is the kind of the companion piece to Cavender is coming is the episode with Carol Burnett. Mr. Beavis is about a guy who has a guardian angel he's, and he's kind of a, you know, weird kind of, uh, you know, a goofball kind of guy. And, and, um, you know, he's always getting into trouble at work because he's just, you know, he's a goofball, you know, that kind of thing. And, and that was, that was a kind of lighthearted comedy. And I, and I, I like that one better than Cavender actually. And, you know, there's a couple of others, uh, showdown with Rance McGrew about a, a Western, uh, guy who's a uh, guy acts in the Western and Jesse James comes back from the dead to tell him that he's given him a bad name because he's, they're portraying all these characters in the wrong way. And, you know, wants to, wants to like rewrite the show. Cause you know, I thought there's, there's some laughs in that one, but, but Rod's comedies never, you know, they never quite, quite made it. And as, at least as, as well as the other ones did, obviously. Well, they say that's the hardest thing to do, right, is comedy. 156 episodes, five seasons. What was the shooting schedule like for The Twilight Zone? They shot most episodes in three days. Yeah, I mean, if they got a rehearsal on the first day, maybe, and then and then two days more. I mean, so it was, they, each episode was done three, pretty much three days. Wow. Did they do a table read? I don't know. I, I, I think they probably occasionally did. Yeah. I think, pro- I think probably they did a table read more often than they did a full blown rehearsal. I would think just because of the time constraints, I would think, but yeah, but I don't know that, that for sure. And was it like a one camera shoot and they would block it out or was it uh, like three cameras or. Um, there were multiple cameras, but I couldn't, that, that I couldn't tell you the, the, the specifics. That's something I did not get into the technical stuff about the production of the show. So there's a, we were talking about, um, Cavender is calling and uh, some of the other episodes that broke with the format. Um, there's another episode that sort of broke the format, the silence, because there's no elements of supernatural uh, or, or sci-fi at all. It's just a, I don't know, like a drama, almost like a psychological thriller even. So tell me about the silence for those who haven't seen it. You write about it a lot in your book. Yeah, I was going to say, I love the silence and, and I, and I, I did not intend this. This was not a, a purposeful thing but uh when i was writing my book i found that i wrote more about the silence than i did about any other twilight zone episode and, and it was just because i found that i had more to say about it for whatever reason and 
the silence is, is, is somewhat polarizing because, as you said, it doesn't have any science, science fiction or supernatural aspect to it. And some people, you know, fellow Twilight Zone fans I know, don't like it for that reason. They think, you know, it could have been an episode of Alfred Hitchcock. And so why, you know, it's not, it's not really a Twilight Zone. So, but I, I don't see it that way. I just see it as a great piece of TV. I don't really care. It, it was a Twilight Zone. It was aired on the Twilight Zone. So for me, it's a great piece of TV and it's a Twilight Zone. So it's a great Twilight Zone. I don't, <laughs> don't really care if it was, you know, in the realm of something else, but um, the silence is again, yeah. For those who, who don't know, it's about uh, a bore and you know, set in a gentleman's club. You know, there's a gentleman's club, all wealthy to do people. And this one particular member of the club just can't shut up. I and mean, he just, he just comes to the club and just yaps and yaps and yaps. And there's one character that really just can't stand it anymore. The rest of the, the rest of the people who are there kind of deal with it. And they, you know, they're just, you know, they, they deal with it, but this guy just can't handle it. And he finally bets the man 500, I believe $500,000, $500,000 that he can't stay quiet for a year. And the bet is that, to prove that he's you know, going to be quiet for a year, they're going to put him in a, in a booth where they, can vis- where they can observe him at every moment of the day. He'll be there, he'll have all, everything he needs, the food and water and TV, and, you, know, where, you know, books and whatever else he needs, but he can't speak. And the episode builds the tension. You know, can this guy make it through the year? And as the, as the time goes on, the man who made the bet with him is, first he's pleading with him to start to cut the bet. I'll give you $15,000. If you get out now, just we'll cut it now. We'll, we'll call it, call it even. And, and the guy won't take the, take the bait. And then he finally starts trying to bait the guy into saying something by, you know, spreading rumors about his wife. Hey, I saw your wife out and then, you know, and seeing, hoping that will do it. And that won't do it. And he finally makes it through the year without speaking. And he comes out to collect. And it turns out the guy who made the bet never had the money. He, he was not, he was a member of the club. But he had used up his fortune years and years ago. He was destitute. He had no money, and he couldn't pay the pay the guy. And then that's so that's the first twist. And this is one of a couple episodes that have kind of a double twist. The second twist is that the reason this guy was able to do the year without speaking is that he before he went in there he had a cert, he had surgery done and he has vocal cords cut. And he shows you the scar on his neck where he had the vocal cords cut. So it's um. What I found, and the reason I wrote so much about it in the book, was that it's such a it's such a brilliant piece of writing. I think I've been using that word brilliant a lot, but it's it's kind of the best word for this. It's such an amazing piece of writing on Sterling's point in the fact that in 30 minutes, and not even 30 minutes because commercials, 24 minutes, Mm -hmm. he takes your sympathies and they start with this guy who's making the bet because this other guy is really a bore. He's a pain in the butt, and and he's you know you hope you want this guy to shut up. So. Your sympathies are with the guy who's making the bet. Yeah, get this guy to shut up. And then gradually your sympathies go to the other guy because this guy is now shit turning. He's starting to say he's starting to spread rumors and say things he shouldn't say. And and, you know, so your sympathy sympathy is, is turning to him. And then when the guy comes out and this guy says, I don't have the money. Well, you would think, all right, now he's clearly the villain here. He made this bet and didn't have the money. But he's sincere. He tells this guy, listen, I would have begged on the street. I would have begged on the street if I could have gotten you the money. I would have done anything. I wanted to get you out of there early. I couldn't do it. And I'm a fraud. And he tells the whole, the whole club, I'm a fraud. I don't deserve to be here. I'll, I'm going to resign, resign my membership immediately. And he's repentant. I mean, you know, so you now all of a sudden, whoa, wait a second. Now your, your sympathies are going the other way. And then this guy says, 
I cheated. I cut my vocal cords. I would never have been able to spend a year being silent. I had to go to extreme means to, to be silent. So you you sympathize with him. Oh, man, he, he cut his vocal cords. Wow, that's terrible. But at the same time, he cheated. He, he knew he couldn't do it. And so it's this moral dilemma of back and forth, back and forth. And neither of the characters are, you know, are to blame completely or to like completely. And Serling's, the way he develops that episode is just amazing. I think that's, you know, if you talk about, you know, writing, writing classes, you want a writing class, take that script and teach that to somebody because it starts with the, the economy of language. That's the economy of language that Brad Serling was able to do, particularly in that episode, is incredible. I mean, he starts with the very first scene in the show is the boar talking his, talking his head off at these other people. And he's saying things like, you know, I was talking to so-and-so today and he gives you the name. I was talking to so-and-so and he says he would do, do this and do that. And you know that that name that he's dropped is a name drop. It's a fictional name. It's a mythical name. It doesn't mean anything to us watching the show, but you know it's a name drop. You know the other people saying, oh, God, he's you know, now he's telling us how he's friends with the mayor again, you know, that kind of thing. And it's in two lines. You get the total sense of this character. You get the total sense of the character and the dynamic between him and the rest of the, the, rest of the club in like two minutes of dialogue, if that, two minutes of dialogue. And then same thing with the other character, where, you know, the character who makes the bet is sitting there with the other guy saying, do you believe this guy? He's going on and he's gritting his teeth and saying, and it's just, it's, it's an amazing bit of characterization in dialogue. You know, he's talking about how great Sterling was with dialogue. Well, this was dialogue that established characteristics in every word. Not, not a word is wasted in that episode. And it's just, it's a clinic. It's a, it's a television writing clinic. You mentioned the two twists there. There's actually there's a third one, which is not known necessarily to people watching the episode, but it's it has to do with this interesting backstory about the loudmouth boar. Uh, do you know what I'm referring to? Uh, his wife, you talking about, or, or you uh, mean no, the... he gets in a bar fight. Oh, oh, oh the ba- oh the backstory. Yes, 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 yes. No, well, that's actually the, the guy who makes the bet. The, um, oh, it's the guy that makes the bet. Yeah, yeah. I forget his, okay. his actor's name. French Tone. French Tone, very good actor. Yeah, he got into a bar fight while the film, while the episode was filming. And so if you watch it now and you know that, watch particularly for the scenes where he is talking to the character in the in the booth, in the silent booth. When he's talking to him, he has his face pressed up against the glass. So you can only see one side of his face because the other side of his face was mangled from getting from getting beat up. And uh, and you would never know that from watching it. But now, if you know, watch it, you'll, you'll notice they never show that left. I think the left side of his face from a certain point forward in the episode. Oh, it's amazing. You know, while you're, you're, you were telling that story, I just, I watched, um, uh, I had this deluxe edition of Network, which I mentioned earlier because it's my favorite film and, and it's, um, you know, the, the little extras, you get the bonus material. So you have Sidney Lumet doing the commentary, you know, while the movie's playing and you learn all of these amazing, you know, backstories and, oh, well, in this scene, it was raining. So when Howard Beale is walking through the streets of New York, it wasn't raining. So we had to, you know, we brought in the rain machine and all of this stuff. How cool would it have been? Because, you know, Serling died in 75, but to have him available to do the commentaries on all of those episodes. Yeah. Well, you know, the amazing thing is that, uh, there is some Sterling commentary on some episodes in some of the DVD releases in the ah. Blu-ray because Rod, uh, Rod taught, Rod taught for a long time. And in teaching, he would very often use his own work as examples of things. So they were able to take some of Rod's teaching audio and put it to the episodes. For example, a walking distance uh, during walking distance in Twilight Zone, um, you have Rod Sterling talking about 
you know, what he was thinking when he wrote, you know, this scene or whatever and talking about Gig, Gig Young's performance in the episode and, and things like that. And there's, there's a bunch like that, actually, that because um, he did. He, he, he brought up his own work, you know, a lot as examples of what to do and what not to do, usually what not to do, again, because Rob was such a critic of his own work. Uh, so, so, yeah, you do actually have that on, on a handful of episodes at least. Oh, very cool. Where did he teach writing? He taught, well, he taught at Ithaca College. Uh, for several years from around the late, well, late sixties until he died in 75, um, really mid sixties until 75. Um, and he did, he taught at Antioch college actually after the, we talked about, you know, there were three seasons of the twilight zone at a half an hour. And then it was one hour. Well, in between the third and fourth season, Rod Sterling decided he was going to take a break and he went back to yellow Springs, Ohio, where he went to college. He went to Antioch and he taught. Uh, so he taught uh, several classes at Antioch in the interim between the third and fourth season of the twilight zone. And actually, even during the fourth season of The Twilight Zone. And that's one reason why he wasn't quite as involved with The Twilight Zone as much in the fourth and fifth seasons as he had been previously. Uh, but so he taught there, and, and he loved teaching. He, 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 he loved interacting with the students. Uh, it was something he was good at, and yeah, he really, he really enjoyed it. Wow. You imagine taking a writing course from Rod Serling and maybe having one of your short stories with his, his comments written on the margins? That's something you would frame. All right, we'll, we'll take another time out. Nicholas Parisi is with us. We'll continue to delve into the uh, life, career, imagination of Rod Serling, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about some specific um, Twilight Zone episodes sure to be on most people's uh, top ten list. Back with uh, more of our discussion right after this. Hi there. I want to tell you about a podcast I know you're going to love. It's called The Dead Files from Travel Channel. On The Dead Files, Amy Allen and Steve DeShavi investigate the paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the United States. Amy and Steve come from totally different perspectives when they investigate. Amy's a medium. She sees and speaks to dead people and uses this skill to find out why someone might be haunting a place. Steve is a retired homicide detective. He tackles the case from the other end of the spectrum and uses public records and witness accounts to piece together the history of the haunted location. On every episode, Steve and Amy investigate a different, real haunting to help the family struggling with its effects. On one episode in Falconer, New York, a family keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They also see a shadow figure lurking around their home. They call Amy and Steve to investigate. Amy uses her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry. Separately, Steve finds out the history of the house from the townspeople and in public records. He finds that several people who lived in this house died, which matches Amy's findings. At the end of the episode, Steve and Amy share their findings and make a recommendation on whether it's safe to stay in the house or time to get out. There are so many crazy stories on the dead files, and what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. You listen to my podcast because you love tales of the paranormal. But if you want more, listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts. The highly anticipated second season of the hit podcast Proof is finally here. Proof is an investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here. Proof made headlines for its first season in 2022 after proving the innocence of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend Brian Bowling when they were just 17 years old. 25 years later, on December 8th, 2022, both men were finally freed based on evidence unearthed by Proof. 
In the second season of Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, this time traveling the streets of Manteca, California, to uncover who really murdered 18-year-old Rene Ramos. On June the 5th, 2000, Ramos's body was found buried under a pile of debris inside the shell of a new Home Depot building. Despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, tips that were ignored until now, Renee's boyfriend, 18-year-old skateboarder Jake Silva, and Ty Lopez, the 33-year-old uncle of one of Jake's close friends, were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. My trusted sponsor, Get the Tea, is having a sale this month on their Apple Cider Plus and one package of their Life Change Tea. What a great combination, considering it's that time of the year to be laying out on the beach or beside a pool in a few less clothes, right? Apple Cider not only helps your digestion along with the tea, but it helps your tummy to feel full to help us cut down on our intake. And don't we all need some of that? Go to GetTheTea.com to grab that sale this month. I love their tea. It's an absolute priority for me each and every day. This tea keeps my digestion and gut running smoothly. Just brew, steep, refrigerate, and drink. It's that easy. Iced tea and apple cider plus for the summer. Great combination. Go to getthetea.com. Apply code Richard July to get free shipping. That's getthetea.com and enter the code Richard July for free shipping. Welcome back. Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Nicholas Parisi is presenting Serling Fest 2022. Let's talk about a, a favorite episode of, of many people. It's probably on most people's top 10 list. Burgess Meredith and his most famous episode, Time Enough at Last. Tell listeners who don't, who don't know about the episode, give us a little summary and, and we'll talk about that one. Yeah, Time Enough at Last uh, was written by Rod Serling uh, based on a short story by Lynn Venable, uh, a woman who I don't think published more than a ha- half a dozen short stories in her life, I think, but this was one of them. <laughs> I don't think she published many, many more. But, and you know what? I shouldn't even say a woman because Lynn, I guess, could be a man. I don't even know for sure if it's a woman or a man, but anyway, Lynn Venable. And it's about a bank teller who loves to read. He loves to read. Not only does he love to read, he's obsessed with reading. He's a, he's a bibliophile. He loves to read so much that he reads at work and he's a bank teller and he's making mistakes because he's constantly reading and not paying attention to his job. And one of his uh, daily rituals is he gets he, to get away from his boss and, and the customers. He will take his lunch break in the vault, in the bank vault. So he'll go and he'll take a book and he'll go down to the vault and to get away and read. And one day he goes down to the vault to read and there's a gigantic bang and his glasses fall off and he wears, you know, very thick glasses and he stumbles out of the vault to deter- to discover that there's been a, a bomb has been dropped. The nuclear, a nuclear war has started. The bomb has been dropped on America and he very well may be the last man on earth. And he's, he's stumbling through the wreckage, finding his coworkers and his boss and everybody else. And the only thing that saved him was being in the bank vault. And he, you, you follow him through the episode, you know, as he's searching for food and, you know, it's kind of scavenging, searching for it to see if there's anybody still alive and gradually becoming more despondent, you know, realizing that he very well may be the last person on earth. And he finds a uh, sporting goods store with a gun and he, find, he finds a gun and he finally just decides, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to end things. I'm going to, you know, God wouldn't want me to be like you. God wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't uh, hold it against me if I ended my life right now, right now because this is, there's nothing to live for. And the moment he's going to pull the trigger, he sees in the distance the public library. 
and, and the public library had been destroyed, but of course the books are all there. And, and so he goes crazy. He goes, oh, I have all the books, I have all the books that I can read, all the books I could ever want. He's going to set them up. I'm going to read these in January and these in February and these in March. And he sets them all up on the steps and he sits down to read that first book. And I have time enough at last to read books. And he bends over to read the first book and his glasses fall off and break on the, on the concrete. And he's so blind you see that, you know, he's, he's, he can't read, he can't read a word. And he's completely, he might as well be blind. And it's, it's an ending that's a punch in the gut. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, I get goosebumps telling you, telling you about it. Really, like, cause I, and I've seen it 50 times, you know, I, it's, it's, it's a punch in the gut because, at least as far as I'm concerned, this is the character in Twilight's own history that did not deserve what he got. I, he did not. All he wanted to do was read. And this comes along and, and Burgess Meredith's last lines are, it's not fair. It's not fair at all. He's crying. And he's saying it's not fair. And that's what you feel as a viewer, I felt. I mean, you feel this is not fair. This is not poetic justice. This is this is maybe poetic, but it ain't justice. This is injustice, you know. And that's so that's that's the twi- it's one of the f- most famous twist endings in Twilight's own history. And that is the twist ending from the short story, by the way. I mean, Rod didn't come up with that. That was the, the twist ending. So it's a terrific ending. And you know, Rod saw it that way in the book. I quote from a letter that he responded to. Somebody had written to, to to tell him how cruel that ending was, and he agrees. He says, "Yeah, you know, we were going for irony, but we kind of came across as as sadism. It was really pretty cruel, you know." But the amazing thing is years and years and years after seeing this episode 20 times and always thinking that that was the only possible interpretation of that episode, I've heard from people who say, no, he got exactly what he deserved because he wanted to be estranged from people. He wanted All he wanted to do was read. He didn't want to be around people. He wanted to deal with people. He didn't want to interact with people. He just wanted to read. And he blew off the humanity for his whole life. And now he's going to have to live without humanity because, you know, he had to go read. And now they're the all taken away from him. And he's going to get his just desserts. And nice as that makes sense. I think it's nonsense. I think it's bull. There's no way. There's no way. Because I think for what, what's on the screen, if you if you really see what's on the screen, it's not that he wants to get away and read. He's constantly trying to share his love of books with people, with his wife, who's the one of the worst characters in Twilight's own history. She tears the pages out of his books and you know scribbles on in the, on the pages. I mean, but he tries to share his love of reading with his wife. He wants to read poetry to her. He tells her, "Oh, there's some beautiful things in here. Let me read this to you." Or he tells his boss, "Have you ever read David Copperfield? I want to tell you about this character. You know, there's this character there. You know, this that's amazing." And so it was never an inter- totally an internal thing with him. And it wasn't like he was just talking to these people, like talking down at them, saying how much I love this book. And, you know, he wanted to share it with them. He wanted to dialogue. He wanted the dialogue. So, so I think he was always yearning for human companionship. It was just that in this world, and by this world, I mean the world of that episode, not necessarily the world we live in. I think that and this is a point I make in the book. I think that that world of that episode is not necessarily our world, even before the bomb drops. I think before the bomb drops, that world is is a dystopia. It's it's a world where intelligence is shunned, shunned upon, you know, frowned upon and shunned. It's a world where the word reader, reader, is an, an epithet. I mean, his boss calls him, you are a reader. Like it's the worst thing in the world, you know, yeah, like, like it's an epithet. Yeah, it's a pejorative. I mean, his wife, his wife is a, is a, is a terrible, terrible woman who, you know, so, you know, thinks that reading all, all literature is doggerel. I mean, so this is a world that really hates the written word and hates uh, literature. I think. And so he was the, he was living in that world. And so that's, he found himself to be the only one who had this love of words and he wanted to share it with people. And there was no way to share it in this particular you know setting. Maybe that's one that uh, Rod Serling, if he could have, he, he would have taken that back and maybe did a, a, a rewrite. A favorite non Rod Serling episode for you? Would it be the, uh, the howling man? Uh, yes. I think that would probably be my top. Yeah. Yeah, for a long time that was my, probably my favorite episode. Period, actually. And, and over the years, it's kind of slipped a little bit, but I still love it. Yeah, it's probably my favorite. Yeah. 
So uh, tell us about the, the episode. What happens? Howling Man is written by Charles Beaumont based on his short story. And it's about a, a man on a walking trip through Europe during World War, uh, during World War II and uh, or before World War, before World War II. And he gets lost in a storm and he stops at a castle or a monastery uh, for help, for, for shelter from the storm. He just wants to stay for a little while and they try to turn him away. No, you can't stay here. And, you know, why can't I stay here? I just, I just want some food. Just give me a night and they can't stay here. Well, it turns out that the, that the, the, the brothers there believe that they have locked up the devil. They caught the devil and they've locked, have him locked up in a, in a cell. And of course they don't want anybody to know about it. Certainly not somebody who just walked in off the street and he, uh, you know, they tell him to stay away from the door. Don't listen to him howling. He's going to howl. He's going to try to get out. Just don't, don't, you know, don't pay attention to him. And the, despite all the warnings, he doesn't believe them. And he lets the man who thinks is just a man out. And the man turns into the devil and he is the devil and he escapes. And so for the rest of this man's life, he's going to dedicate himself to recapture, to making up for what he did. He's going to recapture the devil. And the end of the episode, he shows that, yes, he did. He recaptured him and he has to go out to call Brother Jerome to bring him back. But he has made there. Don't go near the door. And of course, the maid goes to the door and lets the guy, lets him out again. Yeah. So and the, and the catch at the end of the episode, the you know, closing narration is you can catch the devil, but you can't hold him long. <laughs> so I always loved that episode, the visuals of it, the direction of it. It's a uh, it's a scary episode. It's a it's a, yeah, it's a great one. <laughs> Uh, where does on your list of top 10, or maybe it's not in your top 10, I don't know, I don't want to be presumptuous here, uh, Terror at 20,000 Feet with William Shatner? Uh, I usually put that maybe just outside my top 10, somewhere like 11, 12, somewhere in there. Yeah, it's a great episode. Shatner is great in it. Uh, I always, I defend William Shatner to the, to the ends. You know, if anybody thinks William Shatner overacts, he's a bad actor, watch Nightmare 20,000 Feet. He's has a great performance and an understated performance, uh, especially compared to John Lithgow in the, in the movie version of it. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I put that just right out, right outside my top 10. Bro. It, this is Richard Matheson's episode, right? Yes. Yep. Yes. Okay. Yes. Just give us briefly a summary. What happens? That's, uh, um, Bob Wilson is William Shatner's character's name. Bob Wilson is on his flying home with his wife uh, from a mental institution. He had been, he had been uh, in an asylum. He had a nervous breakdown. I shouldn't say an asylum, but he had a nervous breakdown and he was in an institution for a while and his nervous breakdown occurred on an airplane. And he's flying home from that with his wife and he looks out the window and he sees a creature on the wing of the plane. And of course, in true Twilight's on fashion, he's the only one who can see the creature. Every time anybody else looks out the window, the creature has floated away or jumped away. And he, he can't convince anybody that there's a creature on the wing of the plane, but he has to trust his own senses. He has to trust that, yeah, I'm not going crazy. I'm not losing it. There is a creature out there. And he's able to steal a gun from a, from a uh, security uh, officer on the plane, opens the hatch and starts shooting at the at the at the gremlin and the uh you know the plane is able to land through the storm and everything else and again they think he's crazy he's in a straight jacket and he says he's okay and he says yeah I'm, i i know i'm okay i'm the only one who does know right now and then they pan up to the wing of the plane and you see the wing of the plane is has been clawed up and it's it's torn up torn up the the, the planks you know so something you know lightning didn't do that something did. so soon enough they're going to realize that he was right that there was something on, on the plane uh shatner's um, castmate on Star Trek, George Takai, or George Takei, um, Sulu, Mr. Sulu on Star Trek, he appeared in an episode called The Encounter, and um, I haven't seen it, um, and I don't know if, whether it's because it it wasn't um, included in the syndication, 
when uh, but what is so what is so controversial about uh, this episode the encounter well today probably not too much but at the time it was considered controversial and yes it was not included in the initial syndication package so it was not seen for like 25 years after it aired and what was controversial about it was it's a, it's a good episode it's about uh George DK plays a gardener He's a gardener for this man and he's uh, on the grounds and he, uh, this guy is cleaning out his attic and he, George Decay goes up to meet this guy in the attic to talk about whatever, talk about the, the link of the yard or whatever it may be. And the guy has a samurai sword there and they start talking about the samurai sword. And it turns out that the guy says that he got the samurai sword during World War II. He killed a Japanese soldier and he took the samurai sword from him. And George Decay admits that, um, you know, during World War II, his family had helped to guide the planes into Pearl Harbor. That they were in Honolulu, they were in Honolulu, they were in uh, Hawaii, and they helped to guide the planes to their targets. And many, many uh, Asian American groups, of course, said, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa!" There is no evidence whatsoever that any Asian American was a spy. You know, that aided the the, the Japanese in in the attack. And to to you know to insinuate that is really problematic. And I would agree. I would agree. Even in a fictional setting, that's not uh, yeah, not a good message to be sending. So, so after the complaints, the episode was just it was it wasn't aired again, and they just held that syndication. And now you can find it on obviously the DVD collections and things like that. It's a pretty good episode. How did um, Rod Serling make out? He he owned half of the uh, the show uh, with syndication. I mean, he should have been set for life. You would think so, yeah, and and he would have been if he hadn't sold his rights to the show back to CBS, uh, this is the, probably the worst decision of Rod Serling's life. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate. I mean, uh, but what Rod Serling did was he owned half the, sh- half the show. He had the, he had half the films, you know, he owned 50% right of the films and everything else. And Rod, after the show went off the air, he was very impatient with how long it took to get into syndication. Uh, one of the things, again, I think this is a misconception. I think people say, oh, he didn't know how much it would be worth and he didn't know about syndication and he didn't know about merchandising. And none of that's really true. He did know, but he was upset that, and, and I, this is in letters. This is, you know, I've, I've read, you know, his correspondence. He was upset that shows that lasted not as long as the Twilight Zone and ended their runs after the Twilight Zone were already in syndication making money and the Twilight Zone was sitting there collecting dust. And why am I not getting my residual? Why isn't this in syndication? And he was upset. So he finally just said, screw it. And he, and he didn't want to fight with them anymore. And he sold his, his interest back to CBS. And he sold his interest back to CBS for roughly $700,000 or $800,000. Now, in 1965, $800,000 is probably about $8 million, $8 million today. So it wasn't peanuts. I mean, it was a nice chunk of change. But it was, it's worth 100 times that now. I mean, he, he, if he'd held on to it, his great, great, great grandchildren would have been set for life, you know, and as it was, he was set and his kids were set, but that's pretty, pretty much probably about it. Rod Serling, his life, work and imagination. That's the book, Nick, uh, Nicholas Parisi. And again, uh, Serling Fest 2022 coming to Binghamton, New York in August. Go to serlingfest2022.com. And uh, Nicholas, what a pleasure hanging out with you for the last two, <laughs> two hours. I learned a lot. Same here, Richard. Thanks. Thanks so much. I had a great time. A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Subscribe at strangeplanetpodcast.com.